The Energy Gang is brought to you by GE. GE is installing a new battery storage platform all over the world. It's called Reservoir. Reservoir allows energy producers to store their electrons, transforming the possibilities for renewables. The flexible, modular energy storage solution provides up to 50% more solar energy sales while reducing construction time by up to 50%. Learn more at ge.com slash energy storage. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. I have in front of me an article I wrote 10 years ago on the latest activity in geothermal power. The piece is dated October 9th, 2008, the very moment when it looked like the global economy might topple. But you wouldn't know it from my reporting at the time. The piece barely even mentions the financial crisis. It only hints at potential trouble. It's kind of embarrassing, really. I didn't fully grasp right then how deeply the geothermal sector or the energy sector in general was about to get hit. But one guy, then a geothermal expert at a major Icelandic bank, knew a tectonic shift was coming. This week, Alexander Richter joins us on the show. We're going to talk about why geothermal has lagged other renewables since that moment and where the hot spots of activity are taking place today. Then in the second half of the show, the New Green Deal. There's a movement within the Democratic Party to push climate hard. What's behind it? How would the New Green Deal work? And how would it compare to what's happening in states under new governors? I am joined, as always, by my energy entourage, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. These are the people I keep around me to make me sound smart. Catherine is the co-founder of 38 North Solutions. She's in Washington, D.C. Hey, Catherine. Hi. I hope everybody had a nice Thanksgiving. Very nice. Jigger's the president of Generate Capital. He's also in the D.C. region. Hey, Jigger. Hey, how are you? Excellent. Uh, so a quick housekeeping item for our listeners. Our end-of-year storage shindig in San Francisco, the Storage Summit, is coming up on December 11th and 12th. We're going to have all the leading companies there, excellent networking, and you can get 20% off by using the promo code PODCAST. If you go to greentechmedia.com slash events and sign up for Storage Summit, you get 20% off by using the code PODCAST. Uh, that word is like a skeleton key that unlocks all sorts of great holiday deals. It also gets you $50 off a GTM Squared membership. Uh, GTM Squared, we go deep on deals, company strategies, market trends, with lots of data for our Squared members. And you can get 50 bucks off your membership using the code PODCAST. Just go to gtmsquared.com. Okay, let's turn to our guest, Alexander Richter. Google him, and you'll find the title, Passionate International Geothermalist. God, I love that title. Uh, Alex was a founding member of the geothermal investment team at Islands Banki, where he worked on global deals and led the research team. He founded Think Geo Energy in 2008, where he writes about all things geothermal. And he's here with us to talk about what else? Geothermal. Alex Richter, welcome to the show. Thanks, Stephen. Good, good to be on the show here. So I brought up that article that I wrote in 2008 from a major geothermal conference in Reno, Nevada, well, because I interviewed you for it. You were at uh, Glintner Bank at the time. And I remember that morning very well. You gave a presentation on the state of the geothermal market, and then we spoke for the article. But there was something else going on behind the scenes, like, oh, maybe the collapse of the Icelandic banking system. Uh, recall that October morning for me. Yeah, it was a, it was a really, really interesting morning. So um, we gave a press conference in that, that morning to introduce a a market report that, that I had written on the geothermal market in the United States. 
which was quite bullish uh, on development in the United States with U.S. companies, but also Canadian companies that were working on development in, in, in the U.S. at that time. Um, we were quite bullish and quite optimistic of how geothermal could develop in, in the U.S., so we gave that, that presentation, but we already sensed that, that, that our activities and the banks were, were really challenged by the financial crisis. I mean, just a week or 10 days before uh, Lehman Brothers fell. Um, so we came, you know, with a quite kind of unwell feeling in the stomach to uh, this particular geothermal event. And we were one of the only banks working in geothermal at the time uh, with that emphasis. So yeah, so that, that day started off with us presenting our view on the market and, and our optimism on the market, uh, knowing that things maybe not don't look that good on the financial side. So I think, and then and then I gave an interview uh, to yeah took an interview with you, Stephen, um, and uh, I think an hour later we called uh, all Icelanders together in the same room uh, and listened to uh, our prime minister at that time, uh, basically telling that all the banks went bankrupt. Uh, emergency emergency legislation was put in place and uh, yeah he ended the speech by god bless iceland and i think every icelander today remembers the day where he was at the time that happened because it really kind of changed our life completely and for us it basically meant that we wouldn't have a job so recall for me how the financial crisis started working through the geothermal sector in 2008 iceland really thrust itself on the international stage. Um, you had Iceland banks taking equity stakes in projects around the world. Um, you know, Icelandic leaders were talking about how it was going to export its know-how around the world and become this powerhouse in geothermal. There's just a general excitement about the technology because wind and solar were starting to grow, but really hadn't skyrocketed. What happened to all these deals as the financial crisis started rolling through the banks? Um, interesting enough is uh, I think that uh, the deals that we had financed at the time, I think they were they were both uh, successful and, and, and went on and actually power plants were be built. So a lot of the things that we actually had started to work on in the US market and the consolidation of the, the geothermal market and the, the players, actually that happened, uh, interesting enough. Um, and I guess part of that is, is due to the... Uh, the uh, the deal that that were, was put up by the by the Obama presidency uh, uh, in two thousand late in two thousand eight two thousand nine uh, that provided loan guarantees and and other support for the renewable energy sector, and that I think kept a lot of these projects going and actually pushed geothermal development in the U.S. Um, and internationally, naturally, it became more challenging uh, to develop projects. But interesting enough is that most of the geothermal development uh, is happening in the developing world. And the development banks were not hit as hard uh, on the in the financial crisis as the uh, private banks. Um, so, Alex, I'm on a council at the World Economic Forum on Advanced Energy Technology, and one of my colleagues, Vivian Yeda, is with the East African Development Bank, and she's located in Uganda, but has really been talking a lot about Kenya and about that whole region having 20 gigawatts of geothermal potential and really going like gangbusters with the goal of having 100% energy access. But I'd love to hear a little bit more from you about how those development banks are working in that region? 
Uh, yeah, uh, so the development banks have been an important part in funding uh, renewable energy development in the developing world. Uh, and in, in East Africa, where geothermal is such a such an interesting energy source, uh, given that it provides baseload capacity to the market, uh, it's been it's been very popular. And the development banks have looked at fin- funding these these projects. So traditionally, um, the the projects have been financed by the the energy companies uh, on site, and those and those energy companies and the projects and uh, have been then financed by the development banks. And the challenge naturally in geothermal is is the risk profile, uh, the challenge of drilling and finding the necessary resource that would essentially fuel your power plant. Um, and that's where the development banks have have, have looked into ways of, of funding the drilling, and. Naturally, drilling will have to be funded by equity, and the and the development banks are not really in the position to to fund equity, but they can fund funds that actually do some of the equity investments. So there's a lot of uh, European funding, for example, in Eastern Africa, uh, available to different funds that have been set up to support renewable energy development, and that includes geothermal. So we've seen a lot of interest in Kenya and, and, and other East African countries that have geothermal potential to develop its resources. Um, the German development KFW actually has put up a, a fund in place to support early stage development that kind of takes some of the, the risk away from the private investors and the developers. So there's a lot of things happening. And the positive thing is that the loans for the projects are then available at a later stage when you have drilled and building actually the power plant. And that corresponds also with the support of some of the countries supporting their technology companies to sell their equipment, for example, the Japanese. So that come selling their turbines with funding from Japan, for example. Yeah, Alex, I'm curious uh, whether you think that there are structural reasons why geothermal is having challenges scaling, right? As you know, geothermal has been a widely tested and widely successful technology for decades. But when you think about the solution set to climate change broadly, geothermal is not often thought about as a technology that can really scale to meet the challenge. Um, and to be fair, this is this is true. Uh, the challenge in geothermal is that the most of the resources are found in certain hotspots of the world. Uh, so uh, for example, the East African Rift Valley as a, as a, as a tectonically active uh, area of this world where you, you find geothermal uh, resources somewhat close to the surface, naturally make it more economic to derive those resources. The same can be said in the Western United States, uh, all the way going down through Central America and South America and Chile, for example, in Peru. Um, or in the Caribbean, for example, uh, or in Indonesia and the Philippines, Japan and uh, New Zealand. So these are, let's say, the, the the markets where you find the resources closer to the surface, in and allowing them to be derived in an economic way. Elsewhere, it is more challenging and more costly, and there you have a competitive uh, situation with other technologies, renewable or others. Uh, and the question is basically how. Uh, policies are set up to support renewable energy development or at least give it a fair chance. And Geothermal has really found it difficult to compete on a price alone due to the risk involved. We'll talk more about that risk because that seems to be an inherent drawback 
of geothermal compared to other renewable electricities technologies. Um, so geothermal, when up and operating, is a really fantastic, fairly low-cost technology. But uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, as I recall, something around like a third of the capital cost that goes into a project just goes into exploration of the well. And so like you're looking for the hydrothermal resource, for example, and you may spend a ton of capital just trying to determine whether or not the resource is good. Whereas, you know, you, you can just buy some really detailed uh, weather data for a wind and solar project and you generally have really, you know, really good data on the resource itself. So geothermal has all these inherent challenges associated with actual exploration of the resource uh, that can be a turnoff for many investors. Oh, that's and that's that's correct. Um, and we are talking actually. Geothermal is a resource business, so you're you're drilling for uh, a resources beneath the surface. Um, so, and if you drill into the unknown of uh, two thousand to four or five four or five thousand meters, um, uh, the challenge really is 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 how where to find those resources. And in geothermal, we're looking for. Uh, sufficient heat that can support uh, a geothermal plant, but also the water resources, which helps you basically derive that uh, that energy to the surface, because you need that water either in hot water or the steam of that hot water to turn a turbine and produce electricity. So, so that's the challenge: is really finding the the resources, meaning the water, the heat, and sufficient water. That's the that's the main challenge in geothermal. And yes, uh, there's a risk, um, but the challenge is that a lot of these projects are simply too small to uh, to take that risk. Uh, but if you look at, for example, in the case of Africa or in Indonesia, where we have uh, good resources and we have sufficiently big projects and resources, uh, that the risk element is not that big anymore due to the fact that with every well that you drill, you know so much more about the surface that the likelihood of your second or third well being unsuccessful uh, becomes less. So, so that's that's the main challenge. So, Alex, what is the sort of critical mass that you think geothermal needs to be cost effective? Is it you know five megawatts, twenty megawatts, fifty megawatts? That that is the question. We we are we are now talking today about projects from 150, 200 kilowatt uh, up to two, three hundred, three hundred megawatts. So the opportunities for geothermal are, are are really wide, and 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 it's just about what's the the, the actual cost. Of electricity that you have to pay in order to compete against, that's the that's a main challenge. Uh, so talking about the, the the scale, and that's and that's the point that what you mentioned earlier with regards to scale. The challenge really is where can geothermal have an impact, and that's why we find most of the development in areas which have really good resources, have sufficient energy demand, and a, and a positive kind of policy environment. Uh, and that's the reason, for example, why, why why geothermal development in the UNS is not kicking further up because there's more com- competition policies maybe maybe not there, and in others in other regions simply the the resources are not good enough. So we as a geothermal sector we will be competitive, you know, towards other technologies uh, in in certain regions of this world, but we will not be competitive all over the world. That's why we as an industry probably will not play that. A tremendously large part in the in the future energy mix, but we will be very very important in specific countries and regions of this world. For example, Indonesia and East Africa. Yeah. So a couple of things that I would think would be 
really strong selling points for geothermal. One is that the skill set for extractive industries like oil and gas could be used in a transition from a low carbon, you know, to a low carbon energy future for the benefit of the geothermal industry. Another piece is that the operational characteristics of having consistent baseload uh, would be really beneficial. And then the third thing is really that this becomes infrastructure. It's an asset investment. So I would think those three characteristics would all play into the benefits of geothermal. That's absolutely absolutely correct. So if we look at the jobs, I mean, we are uh, everything that is related to the subsurface, including the, the drilling, basically is technology coming from the oil and gas sector. So the oil and gas sector actually would be the, the, the fantastic partner uh, in geothermal development. Uh, and there's been a lot of uh, a crossover of the technology. Uh, and, and some of the companies, actually, when the oil price was really low, a lot of the oil companies actually, or the oil service companies in particular, looked at geothermal in a way of addressing some of the, the the needs of the sector but at the same time putting their people at work so that's that that's been a very positive effect uh, talking about infrastructure same thing here the the, the surface technology the, the the thermal technology that we're using with the turbines etc this is all technology that's that's that has seen some development. So we can now actually utilize lower temperature resources for uh, geothermal power plants. So that's that has actually extended uh, the reach of geothermal. You know, one of the things that strikes me is that there are models that have worked in the past. So when you look at Kenya, you know, ARENA and others played a big role in providing the capital for the exploration. And that was really centralized. It was not left to the private sector to do, but in fact was done by the government and then shared with the private sector, I'm assuming that Iceland was sort of similar. In the U.S., you have similar experiments in the past where, you know, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers worked on developing most of the hydro capacity in the U.S. You got a lot of the initial data for wind speed testing on land as well as solar irradiation done at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. So it feels like one of the big challenges with geothermal is that in these hotspots, as you call them, um, that there really should be public dollars used to pay for all the exploration costs. I I would disagree in a sense that you know it's not as cut paste cut and paste like like that what works in Africa works in the U.S. and vice versa. So it really depends on the on the overall market conditions. Uh, in the developing world where you don't have so, that much funding, uh, public money is actually really needed and, and the support of development banks, uh, both both regional and international, is, is very much needed to get things off the ground. Uh, in other countries, you have other stimulations. Uh, so, for example, in, in Germany, you had uh, initial drilling funds that have been set up by the, by the government, but that actually then kicked off investment by the private sector. And the question is basically what model works best in different countries? If, if, if I were to generalize, I think that the crucial part is really finding a way to support the, the risk taking of the investor uh, and doing this through an insurance product or insurance model or taking the drilling risk altogether. Um, that really depends of where you are in the market and how much of a private market driven economy or, or development that you, that you have. So you create on the, on the one hand, you create the pull effect, I know, of, of the market buying the power. At uh, you know an attractive price both to the developer and the market, and at the same time you 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 help at the bottom end at the early stages 
with public money uh, and the model of that can be various. It can be a, a self-carrying model where you have a drilling fund that refinances itself that just needs a kickoff from the government or you create, like for example in Kenya where they created their own drilling company uh, that is developing the or is doing all the drilling and then when the drilling has been successful, it then gives the project to a private developer. So the market really kind of has different models and it's the question what works best in a specific setting of a country. So a lot needs to go right. So Alex, I reached out to Susan Petty, who headed Alta Rock and is now with Cirque Energy. And Alta Rock was a company that tried to make, um, that works really hard on underperforming geothermal plants to try to help them operate at a, pi- at a profit. And then they've connected with Cirque now that has five plants, three in Nevada, one in Utah, and one in New Mexico. And you know, she sees the, the same benefits that you're talking about and, and filling in the gaps that are left by solar and wind and other technologies, being geothermal being very well suited. But one of the issues she kept bringing up, and that also seems like an issue in Kenya and other places, is actually interconnection points, transmission and distribution lines to move the power to where it's needed most. So I, it, it strikes me that transmission is going to be incredibly important in the U.S. as well in whatever public policy we pursue on you know, moving to 100% renewables. Absolutely. And it's actually really interesting that you mentioned Susan, who's been a driving force in geothermal, particular in you know, exploring this new technology, EGS. And funny enough, is actually one of the projects that, that she has now been working on this with Alterock. And now Cirque Energy is one of the projects that our bank financed the drilling. So the, the circle and, and, and the industry is very small. But having said that, the interconnection really is an issue. The resources of geothermal are quite often not where you need the electricity. So transmission is always an issue. Um, so, for example, for the projects that we face in, 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 in Chile, uh, you need an interconnection of, let's say, 50, 50, 60 miles, sometimes even 100 miles. And that is naturally adding to the cost. Um, and the question is basically, as a, as, a, as a country, kind of how do you set up the, the electricity market to utilize that baseload power and combine this? So generally, I would say is that as a geothermal sector, we will always be just an, uh, a supportive uh, electricity source. We will never be kind of the, 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 the sole source of electricity. We need all different renewable energy technologies and we need an electricity market that, that, that puts them all together, creates a, a level play field, but at the same time also understands the issue of storage and intermittency and figures out a way to, to work this together. And that's where transmission is a, is, a, is a huge, huge factor in a sense of how can you transport the electricity to places that, that, uh, that need it. That's, that's a big issue in, in Europe, in the US and elsewhere. So let's wrap up by revisiting my sentiment and the industry sentiment in 2008. There was a lot of activity at that time in enhanced or engineered geothermal. Again, these man-made wells. Um, At the time, researchers said we have around 100 gigawatts of enhanced geothermal potential. Well, we still do. The trouble is accessing it. Uh, There were companies developing modular low-temperature plants uh, with varying degrees of success. There were some new drilling companies. It felt like a lot was coming together. How does industry sentiment today compare with how folks felt in 2008 before the financial collapse? I think we had an, uh, in, an intermediate shock, to say the least. Uh, but that was naturally a bit of a personal issue as well with regards to you know the changed environment for us in the banking world. But for the for the energy sector, uh, 
it actually hasn't changed much. The the, the funding uh, put up in the United States actually kept projects going. So, so things actually never stood still due to the financial crisis. So things actually continued to develop. And internationally, um, due to the development in Africa and the development bank funding, a lot of the expertise that is available in the United States, in Europe, and here in Iceland, for example, actually was put to place in development in those regions. So the jobs continued to be there. The work st- uh, was still there. So it was not that an industry was dying. Um, and we've seen a lot of technology development in the in the process. Uh, we have now uh, quite a few companies that provide uh, what we call binary solutions, technology solutions, turbine uh, solutions that have created a competitive element, have driven down costs for power plants utilizing lower temperature resources. Um, on the drilling side, we have uh, oil companies or oil service companies that have entered the market and do drilling and, and, and related services to the geothermal sector. So this, this there's been a lot of things happening. What we've just not seen, we have not seen the the hockey stick kind of growth for geothermal. It's just been this continuous, relatively slow and steady growth of geothermal. Alex Richter is the founder of Think Geo Energy. You can read all about the happenings in the geothermal sector at thinkgeoenergy.com. Alex, it was a real pleasure catching back up with you. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me and giving geothermal a voice here on your podcast. It's the holidays, and I see a lot of hardworking delivery men and women roaming the streets, dropping off packages in my neighborhood. It reminds me of the postal delivery motto. Neither rain, nor snow, nor heat, nor gloom of night stays these couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds. I've always loved that saying. And that motto perfectly applies to GE's new energy storage system, Reservoir. With up to 15% extended battery life, Reservoir saves energy for when it's needed most. Whether it's raining, hailing, sleeting, or snowing, GE's Reservoir helps keep the lights on. Nothing will keep GE's Reservoir from its completion of appointed rounds, no matter the conditions. GE's Reservoir helps harness and store the power of solar energy so it's available even when the sun isn't shining. That is the power of power. Find out more at ge.com slash energy storage. That's ge.com slash energy storage. We have a new climate rallying cry in Washington, the Green New Deal. A loose coalition of activists and freshman Democrats are taking over congressional offices, raising their green fists in the air and demanding a socialistic climate plan that includes 100% renewable energy and clean energy jobs for anyone who wants one. Their leader is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the newly elected Democratic congresswoman from New York. The story is compelling for a few reasons. One, it is part of this broader struggle within the Democratic Party over whether to support Nancy Pelosi as speaker uh, and what to do about climate. Two, it shows just how deep this 100% renewable energy message is getting pushed into the Democratic Party. And three, it comes just as the federal government released another astonishing climate report, which, of course, President Trump is just flat out saying he doesn't believe. So let's quickly touch on the politics. Uh, but I want to spend more of our time talking about what's in the plan and how it aligns with local activity around the country. Catherine, how did the new Green Deal work its way into the political conversation? Yeah, it's not really super new. It's It was part of the Green Party platform with Jill Stein kind of talking a lot about it. But with the 
climate report that came out, the IPCC report that we've talked about, I think people are becoming much more focused. And because they're living through climate change on a daily basis, people are becoming much more focused on climate change and what we can do. So what this does is really set forward some really aspirational goals and says, this is what we need to do and this is where we need to be. And it's trying to organize around those. There are a lot of young people involved. There was a great um, interview with the co-founder of the Sunrise Movement, Varshini Prakash, on the political climate show that you that uh, you all do that was great because she talked about what the organizing principles are, how fresh people coming into Congress, these new freshmen, are very interested in organizing around it and really interested in pushing the establishment to focus on climate. And I think that is all very positive. For sure. Uh, So I want to cover new ground. And if you want the entire political backstory, go listen to our other podcast, Political Climate. Julia Piper and her gang over there did a really nice job talking about the New Green Deal and freshman Democrats and their influence on the emerging politics of climate in the Democratic Party. I want to talk a little bit about what is in this plan. As you said, it was pushed by Jill Stein as part of the Green Party. It is pretty different in terms of its language, but it touches on the same goals. And that is creating um, a program to give anyone a clean energy job if they want one, pushing toward 100% renewable electricity, creating you know a large smart grid, whatever that is. It's not clearly defined, but they call out smart grid technologies to make the grid more interactive and more intelligent. So uh, what caught your eye, Catherine, as part of this plan that is interesting to you? Is anything new? Yeah, so one is that at the core of this plan are equity and justice issues. And I think those are really important to focus on. So there's a lot of focus on jobs and on making sure that everyone is brought along. And I think that's where we have fallen back on a lot of what we've done. There are also very specific goals, although they are very aspirational. As you say, 100% renewables, um, making a massive investment in um capturing greenhouse gases, decarbonizing across sectors. Those are all really important. One of the things that they're also focused on is creating a select committee in the House of Representatives for a Green New Deal. And if you look back, there was a select committee on energy independence and global warming that Ed Markey from Massachusetts, who's now in the Senate, headed up. And that was created in 2007 for the 110th and 111th Congress to really focus on climate change and how do we move it forward. And they did that because John Dingell, who was the chair of Energy and Commerce Committee, was really not going to talk about it. Um, I think that the politics are very different now in that committee chairs are much more pro-environment and focused on climate change solutions. So I think that the dynamics have changed. But having a select committee that kind of shepherds um, the goals, shepherds legislation, even if it doesn't have legislative authority, which I think would be very, very hard to give it, it would still be able to continue to organize by putting pressure on all of the different committees of jurisdiction that are really going to have to be part of this conversation. That's one of the big pieces of criticism, that that former select committee was very weak 
They only held hearings. They didn't have any legislative authority. And proponents of the New Green Deal want this new committee to have legislative authority. They want them to draft a plan by the beginning of 2020. Uh, You know, they'll have the ability to craft legislation. They'll have investigative powers. They will work with other committees with relevant work ahead of them. So uh, this is a very different body in theory than the former Select Committee on Climate Change. So I wouldn't get hung up on the details and the nuance here. I think that in the end, this is an invitation for everyone to participate on what this would look like. Remember that Bill McKibben, I think, really started a lot of this with his wartime footing uh, piece that he wrote. And, you know, I think really talking about what it would take to get uh, a dramatic reduction in climate emissions over 10 years, I think that, you know, the Sunrise Movement folks who've really been leading this and then... um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who's sort of taken it on, I think is, you know, saying, well, how do we do this more formally within the House Select Committee process, which is great. And now it really depends on how many folks are going to participate, right? So are the geothermal folks going to come forward and say, here are the 14 things that would help us and the nuclear industry can come forward and the wave power and the tidal power people and the folks pushing natural gas for vehicles and the folks pushing, you know, reforestation and soil carbon. And there's tons of different approaches to reducing climate. And all of them, I think, if they really want to be heard and included in future legislation, should put the time and effort into putting their best ideas forward. Yeah, and not just by industry or technology, but also by policy and jurisdiction. So there's so many committees that could have these conversations like energy and commerce, natural resources, House Science Committee, Ways and Means, and on the Senate side, energy and natural resources, environment and public works, finance, and many others, maybe transportation and infrastructure, maybe the health committees. So you could really make sure that you know, with one initiative, it's not just a moonshot with call to action, but that it really looks at a lot of different policy positions and and policy solutions. Two things concern me about the language in the New Green Deal. Obviously, starting from a place where you're including everyone is really important and thinking about um, how to maximize the societal benefits of the renewable energy transition is vital. But They talk about a job guarantee program to assure every living wage person a job who wants one. That seems a little absurd to me. Um, they, they, They say that the government should be making most of the investments. They say, we're not saying there isn't a role for private sector investments. We're just saying that the level of investment required will need the government to be the prime driver. And those two things, A, feel like a non starter. And B, are kind of out of sync with the way the industry has grown thus far and really exploded. But Stephen, I think they can't start negotiating against themselves right now. They This is a moonshot. This is aspirational. And this is an organizing principle. So we need to have something for everybody to look at and focus on and in a positive narrative in a way that really hooks the imagination of both young people and seasoned folks that have been out there that know what's realistic, but not to have them start negotiating against themselves right now. I would also say, Stephen, that when you think about the natural disasters that we're facing today, um, the government's already paying. So it's not like they're not paying. I mean, they've paid $82 billion in Puerto Rico. Think about the billions that they've paid in Houston, right? They could have used a lot of that money to make the island more resilient using renewable microgrids, 
you know, five years ago, eight years ago, but they didn't, right? Because they were so worried about using government funding. And now in the end, they're spending 10 times that. So it's just one of those things where I think that a lot of times we think things are not really possible or doesn't really make sense until they do. Mm-hmm. I think what worries me is that the New Green Deal pushes us toward simply got more government involvement. Instead of taking a step back and saying, how can we create the most efficient, elegant system possible and, you know, cutting back rules and regulations that hinder renewable energy, creating an efficient carbon tax. I mean, to me, all this, all these things are non-starters in the political environment, but those more simple, elegant solutions to unleash renewable energy feel to me more realistic and beneficial than some large new deal where we guarantee everybody a job. Well, but we talked about this at the New York um, Live podcast. Look, I believe in capitalism, and I work hard every day to get private sector dollars into clean energy, including our money at Generate. But I think that um, we're all working towards the 1%, right? We're all working towards creating a competent workforce and a competent sort of risk profile around these solution sets. At the end of the day, like what's what it's going to take to really solve climate change is a Pearl Harbor moment, right? And that could be the campfire, you know, um, devastation that we just experienced. It could be the hurricanes that we've experienced. It could be something in the future. But when that occurs, to get carbon emissions down in 10 years will take extraordinary government involvement to the point where they do the same thing they did in World War II. Remember, the government didn't ask Ford Motor Company for permission to use its plants. It seized them. And the Department of Defense actually used them to produce planes and other things, right? That is probably what's going to happen around climate change. I think that to think that the the current system of capitalism is going to naturally get us to a fully decarbonized um, system, even with the, the state governments providing renewable portfolio standard policies or AB32 carbon trading is sort of, I think, illogical. I don't disagree with that. And I do feel like the language here is commensurate with the challenge. Um, I think that the hairs on the back of my neck start to stand up when, you know, you start talking about a, a government safety net that guarantees everybody a job. And I don't want our listeners to think that, you know, societal benefits and social justice issues aren't important. I mean, they should be the foundation of any good policy. We need to make sure this transition includes everybody. Um, But the way that the language is structured now definitely gives me pause. But we did provide everybody a job. I mean, the thing that I find that's so fascinating here is that we did that during the Great Depression, right? I I actually think it's one of Obama's biggest failings is that in the era stimulus bill, they just provided people with multi-year unemployment benefits as opposed to giving them a job, which is the same damn thing, right? You might as well have said, here's a job, go do something that's really useful to the country and serve your country this way. And I think part of the green job piece is they're not saying that everyone gets a job. They're saying that everyone who wants to participate in the Green New Deal, doing something that's useful to the Green New Deal on adaptation or the things, would get a guaranteed job from the federal government. And my sense is, is that we actually need millions of people to do the type of adaptation required to save the most vulnerable among us from the worst impacts of climate change. Mm -hmm. I want to tap into a debate that took place on the Political Climate Podcast about grassroots organizing versus, you know, whipping up votes in the House. And, you know, Shane Skelton's argument was, 
Grassroots organizing is great for winning elections, but it doesn't really matter for crafting a bill like this or drafting a select committee. Uh, And, you know, Brandon Hurlbut made the exact opposite argument. He was like, absolutely not. This is the way that you force legislators into considering these types of ambitious plans. Any thoughts from either of you on which is more effective at this stage in the game in actually getting a large body like the House to move toward, you know, some ambitious plan? Yeah, so you need both. And I think um, they're both important. I actually agree with Shane on a lot of what he said. But one piece is you have to hold your elected officials accountable. And you have to make sure in every debate that they talk about climate and those questions are addressed and that they are that they are actually held responsible for protecting the people that they represent and who vote for them. So it's correct that having grassroots and having people being able to join around a call to action and pushing their elected representatives is really important. But once it gets into the legislative process, it is so much about the structure of Congress and who is chairing the committees and who calls the witnesses and who puts forward the studies. And that is a lot of insiders game. And yes, we need to hold them accountable, but committee structure is incredibly important. And you want to make sure that the people are leading those committees and that the staffing for those committees is very strong so that the right questions get asked and the right legislation gets crafted. Because Shane was right on the aspect of so much of this happens inside Congress. And yes, pressure from the outside is good. But if you don't have somebody rallying the troops and making sure that all of the committees are aligned on their policy efforts, it it won't get done. Right. But Catherine, let me say it this way, right? Do you think for one moment we'd be talking about this issue at all if the Sunrise Movement people didn't take over Nancy Pelosi's office? We would be talking about immigration and maybe an infrastructure bill. There's no way in hell Nancy Pelosi would have put climate change at the front and center of the news cycle for four or five days. Yeah, I think it is important that they did that. Yes, I, I agree. Although, you know, with the IPCC report and now the National Climate Assessment that just came out last week, which is 13 federal agencies saying, look, climate change is already happening. It's going to get worse. Everything is tied together in this ecosystem. It's going to cost a ton of money and lives, and we can do something about it. I mean, this is the federal government saying that. I think it's out there already. Yes, pressure being put on her is very important, but it is, this conversation is going to happen. Uh, I wish it changed the conversation on cable news. Uh, If you watch any of the Sunday talk shows, they can't help but turn this into a political conversation. And no matter what, the science is always framed in a who's up, who's down kind of way. It's always framed in a political conversation, and it completely hinders our ability to move the conversation forward. It's really discouraging. Yeah, not only do they not have real climate scientists on, they bring in the people who still believe in the Loch Ness Monster, but they also don't even bring in people like Jigger who can say, this is a real business. This is a wealth creation opportunity. That's who they need to bring on because often the reporters don't even understand that there are technologies that we have right now to solve this problem. In the meantime, let's give our free electrons. Jigger, what's your free electron? So mine's a little dated now from last week, but, uh, um, but Italian insurance uh, giant uh, Titan Generale is the largest insurer in Italy and the third largest in Europe. 
and it announced it will no longer ensure the construction of new coal mines or plants and won't accept any new clients who derive more than 30% of their energy production or revenue from coals, from coal. And so I think that you're starting to see a huge list of insurers that are now saying that um, coal is not insurable. And I think that's a big deal, right? Because when insurance doesn't uh, work, then it's really hard to invest in these uh, new assets. Always look to the insurance industry. They've got some of the best data, and they are usually well ahead of policy. And they do listen to scientists. They do, indeed. They're like the canary in the coal mine, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> they, they, they have seen the canary you know, you know, dying in the coal mine already. <laughs> Catherine, what's your free electron? Yeah, so recently, Rocky Mountain Institute released a report uh, along with America's Power Plan and the AEE Institute on navigating the utility business model reform. And given how much we talk about utilities and how much Jigger loves utilities, they really dig into, you know, what are the traditional requirements of utilities, safety, reliability, and affordability, and how much harder those are becoming, given what's changing in our climate. But also, what are the new requirements that we're putting on them, the expectations of environmental performance and resilience and more consumer choice and innovation? They talk about the different utility constructs and the policy tools, the reform options, and the case studies. It's not a huge report. It's about 80 pages. A lot of that is appendices. Uh, But it's very visual. It's useful. I thought it was a good summary of what utilities are looking at for the future and what may, may different pathways may be. RMI always has really good resources. So I'll add that one to the list. Um, I have a an insight that I was thinking about last night. So I was watching before bed some Anthony Bourdain, rest in peace. And uh, he had a show where he visited Antarctica and talked to a bunch of construction workers and heavy machinery operators and scientists alike who are all working together uh, in this really unique way. And the way the scientists were talking about their work together with the machine operators and the people who are making the you know the the international base in Antarctica function it just felt very real to me and felt like a lot of the other reality tv shows i've seen like ice road truckers um and 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 shows about people out in the wilderness and there's just like this brand of reality tv show that makes people in certain professions really compelling and very interesting. And so I wonder, like, why hasn't anyone done that for climate scientists? These are the people who are doing really extreme work in very extreme environments. So if anyone out there is working in television, maybe go think about this opportunity. It seems like a really cool way to tap into people's reactions to that kind of reality television. Yeah, that would be great. And I think that would also capture the imagination of a lot of young people who love watching shows like that, including my own kids. Yeah, I think just a a broader swath of the American public that doesn't even really think about climate change, except for when they see some blaring headline about a dire UN climate report. This is a way for people to truly understand the science. Okay, well, with that, we're going to wrap up the show. 
give us a rating review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. It is extraordinarily helpful for boosting us up the rankings and helping us find new listeners. And hit us up on Twitter or at podcast at greentechmedia.com if you want to deliver some feedback or suggest story ideas. I'm Stephen Lacey with Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. This is The Energy Gang. We'll catch you next time. Thank you.